uh, we turn to our scripture reading today, which comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. And we've been looking at the life of Jesus, how despite how busy he is, he still makes time for people. Uh, we saw that especially last week with the Syrophoenician woman who had no business being in the presence of Jesus. And yet, despite that, Jesus still ministers to her. And the thing is, if Jesus is willing to minister to someone who he should have no dealings with, how much more so all of us that come here before him, that God's intention, his heart and purpose is to be with us, is to connect with us, is to do life with us. Not so distant, but close. And so with this in mind, let's turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through 37. And if you're able, can you please stand and arise with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Uh, let's give them our full attention today. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus tar charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. And he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Amen. Those goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us. As the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. If we can make sure that the sermon recording is going on, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, we just simply ask, may the words of my lips be pleasing to you, but also may the meditations of our hearts and mind be pleasing. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I used to live in San Diego, and I lived in an area where they would have fighter jets zooming over our neighborhood, and they're called the Blue Angels, and they would practice their acrobatic stunts over our neighborhood. And every time they come over and fly over our neighborhood, it, like the whole house would shake, our eardrums would just be splitting, the car alarms would be going off. And honestly, every time I look at those planes, I just... I, I, I just grieve because that there goes my tax dollars with all that jet fuel engine just to practice these things, you know? But that's besides the point here. I didn't realize, it turns out, that if you live in a noisy environment, it actually induces a higher risk, you're put at a higher risk of hypertension, of stroke, and of heart attacks. I didn't realize this. And the thing is, no matter where you live, like even if you live kind of distance from a train and it's not as loud as these jet fighter plane engines, you, you don't really get used to the noise actually because the data actually shows and proves that um, prior nose noise exposure uh, primes our bodies to actually overreact, amplifying negative effects. We don't really, get, we don't really think about how our surrounding noise actually affects us. 
Yet every day we're surrounded by noise of different kinds. Noise that says you're not really good enough. Noise that says you're not fit enough. Noise that's always chiming in and telling us you don't have enough. And the compounding effect of all this, taking in all this noise, causes a deafness of heart, meaning a, a dullness for the capacity to have jo joy in this world. What can we do about it? And there's only one thing, connect with God. It's the only solution. And yet, what does it really mean for us to be able to connect with God? Especially in our overly busy lives. And I believe it's three things here that we see in our passage. It's one, community. Two, communion. And three, last of all, a commitment. Those three things we're going to look at. Community, communion, and commitment. Let's look at our first point here. Community. So Jesus, in this passage, he, he meets a man who is both deaf and has a speech impediment. And most likely, the man wasn't born deaf because the speech impediment implies that he already, had use, he already used words to begin with that became impeded. Somewhere along the way, he became deaf. We don't know how. We don't know when. But once his hearing gave out, so goes his speech. And you have to understand, during this time, it was an oral culture where people would just hear and learn, uh, learn uh, where everything was learned through hearing. Uh, that's how you learned about God, how you learned about your culture. And so if you were deaf and you couldn't participate in any of these things, it meant that you were essentially cut off from your community. And not only that, there's also a stigma attached to deafness. Because as you'll see here in the Old Testament, in places like Jeremiah 5.21 and Ezekiel 12.2, you find that deafness is a description of someone's stubborn, willful rejection of God. And so when someone saw someone who was deaf, in the back of their minds, they're thinking, this person must have seriously done something wrong to be cursed by God. And no one wants to go near someone who is cursed. Yet you find here in verse 32, they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him, that's Jesus, to lay his hands on him. Now question for you, who is they? Who is the they that they speak about? I mean, they could have been maybe beloved friends that he had, the deaf man had. They could have been family, and yet they is left anonymous. But I will say this about they. They are those who cared enough to be with this, uh, with this deaf man, to not give up on him. They weren't willing to give up on this man. And this is where New Life Fremont comes in. They has to be us. They has to be us. Because we all need someone to believe in us we all need someone to encourage us just to get through, just to get by in life. And the thing about faith is it isn't something that you just conjure up on your own. You, you need a community with you. You need a spiritual family. 
there's this Japanese philosopher, his name is uh, over here, Tetsuro Watsuji. Sorry, I butchered the name. But he observed that when he looks at Western homes in America, how they have many internal walls in them, he, it reveals to him that the real meaning of family of the West is this, pragmatic cohabitation by self-interested individuals. Cohabitation by self-interested, pragmatic cohabitation by self-interested individuals. Maybe he's onto something. If you, you know, your kids, they ask you for goldfish, do you ask them what's in it for me? Or when you're doing chores for your spouse, or you're paying the bills, you're doing all these loving things, but in the back of your mind, do you think you better hold up your end? There's this one guy, man who said that he treats uh, church like his girlfriends. And he says, I'll stick around for a while and then it's on to the next one. Isn't that quite lovely there? The common denominator of all this is I'll be in this relationship with you until you start becoming a problem. Then I'm out. I'm in as long as you're not a problem pragmatic cohabitation of self-interested individuals. The thing about being family means you acknowledge and accept up front that in your family, everyone's got problems. That's the first. Why else do you think that when we take membership vows here, for those of you who are members, the very first vow that you acknowledge here is this. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, yet saved in his sovereign mercy. It's number one for a reason. Because it acknowledges we all have problems. We all have problems. See, the thing is, whoever they are in this passage, they begged on behalf of the deaf man for his healing. They made his problem their very own. And that is essentially what God does for us. There's family for you. It's not so much everyone else figure out their own problems, but your problems become mine and we lovingly bear them up together. Don't neglect the fact that your gift of presence goes farther than you actually think. Your presence goes farther than you actually think. Listen, when the pandemic happened, all of us kind of suffered because we couldn't really meet each other. And when that happened, the common theme that everyone longed for is a sense of what? Community. A presence together. And just like all of you, I'm sure it was tough on all your families. It was tough on yourselves. And it was tough spiritually too. Myself included. I distinctly remember a time talking on the phone with one of my friends from church and I was just sharing how difficult it's been for me and for my family and I didn't know if we're going to make it through. I thought honestly I was done being a pastor in the middle of the pandemic. And as he was hearing me, he just simply prayed for me over the phone and like I distinctly remember him weeping as he prayed over me. And for some reason, that helped me. Someone cared enough. Someone was there for me. My problem became his. This is what church is supposed to be. It's a spiritual family. We take on, we bear each other's burdens. The goal of community of the church, ultimately, is to bring about 
communion, connection with God. Which leads us to the second point here. This might sound obvious, um, and um, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence here, but the fact that this man is deaf also meant he couldn't hear God's word. And the literary, the liter- literacy rates back then were incredibly low. So even if you could read back then, the scrolls of the Bible, they weren't exactly accessible because it's not like they have printing presses back then. Everything was done by hand. And so if you really wanted to hear the word of God, you'd have to go to your local synagogue and have a rabbi read the words of God and also teach it. So imagine if you're deaf, you have no means of hearing the word or a sermon being taught. Basically, you couldn't connect with God. You couldn't come close to it. This man is deaf. Well, what's our our excuse? Man, today we have so many resources at our fingertips. It's insane. You, you can listen to any pastor from any region of this world. You, you, you can, um, you, you can kind of like date around different churches to see what kind of different programs they have to offer. There's Bible apps, all different kinds of 15 different translations that if you really wanted to connect with God, you have a whole ocean of options. It's unlimited. But do you feel that much closer to God? Are you that much closer to him? Pastor John Ortberg, he wrote this. He said, the average iPhone user touches their phones 2,617 times a day. By way of contrast, the psalmist said, I have set the Lord always before me. Psalm 16.8. What would my life be like if God touched my mind as frequently as I touched my phone, end quote. And when I read this, I was like, I, I, I like, I threw my phone away, but I still, you know, touched it to play chess and all that. And the thing is, I believe our way of life, our noisiness, is distracting us from God. It's really distracting us from God the noise of everything we need to accomplish and get done. And the only cure from all of this is to spend time with God in silence. St. Augustine here, he once said that entering silence is to enter into joy. While another Syrian monk put it this way, that the friend of silence draws nearer to God. See, in our minds, we think that that would be nice, Amos, If only I had the time, it'd be nice if I wasn't so exhausted. But isn't that the essential reason why you need more of this time? To be silent with God, to pray, to read his word, to meditate. Jesus takes this man aside from all the distractions. And look at what he does in verse 33. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Epatha, that is, be opened. This is like every parent's nightmare here, right? This is like an ear affection that Jesus is uh, perhaps uh, uh, causing, and it certainly breaks all COVID protocols with the whole spitting thing, and yet touching his tongue, that's just gross on many levels, Right? 
And yet it's such an awkward scene. So what is Jesus essentially doing here? He's speaking this man's language. That as he places his hands or his fingers on his ear and his tongue, Jesus says, I know your pain. I know what ails you. And as Jesus spits out in front of the man, saliva back then was uh, known for magical healing powers under uh, different sorcerers and magicians. That, that, that was the wide-held belief. And by spitting, Jesus is saying, but I can heal. Not because of superstitions or magical incantations, but as Jesus looks up to heaven, he shows where the power to heal comes from. It comes from God that God can heal you. And by the power of God's word, Jesus says, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Opened, released, a language of freedom. All because of what Jesus does here. When I used to live in Davis, I also um, had this lingering cough, and it must have been like for well over a year, actually. I, I just assumed it was allergies from all the pollen that uh, Davis is known for. And even though my wife Kathy insisted, please, can you just go see a doctor? I didn't because, first of all, I didn't want to pay the co-payment for something they'll probably not cure on the spot. I also just kept putting it off because I just kept getting busy and busy, and I'll do it next week, I'll do it next month, I'll do it next year. Finally, the stars align. I saw the doctor, and the doctor kind of looks up my nose, and she says, oh, you have post-nasal trip. Take this medication. And I took the medication. Strangest thing happened. I got better. And my, my sense of smell opened up. I could smell things. The food started to taste better. And I was less exhausted because my body wasn't exerting itself with all the coughing. I have this idea or this sneaking suspicion that all of us, when we think about spending time with God, prioritizing him in our lives, that we don't want to do that because then it will make us lose out on everything else that we want in our lives. That if we prioritize God, that it will lessen all the other enjoyments that we want to enjoy. And I realized something, uh, I realized it reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis says, and I'm just going to paraphrase here. But he says essentially this point, that we naturally think that if we prioritize God in our lives, it diminishes everything else. But in reality, when we elevate God in our lives, all the different joys in life become elevated. He elevates our different senses. God's not competing with the desires that we have. Instead, he's elevating the joys that we already possess. If we would just spend time with him, if we would just be, as God says, be opened. Be open to him. Because God is more committed to your well-being than you are for yourself. And here lies the last point, commitment. See, this deaf man, he finally hears. He finally is able to speak and converse, uh, go back to a normal life. And you would think that with this new gift that God has granted to him, he would test out his new ear, 
you know, maybe go to the Taylor Swift concert, experience a rendition of Yurima playing on the keys, uh, go to a, a public space to, to enjoy a nice meal, converse with his friends. But instead, he and his friends testify to the greatness of Jesus. And what's strange here is that Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what happened. But the more Jesus tells them not to, the text says they do it all the more. They proclaim he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Why doesn't Jesus want, to, want, want them to tell them about him? And I think the closest thing I can come to is, about, is we don't want people to spoil things, spoil the ending of movies or how a show was, because it sets a different expectation for us. I think when Jesus uh, tells the friends and the deaf man not to speak about what happened, he's trying to set the right expectations. That Jesus isn't just a miracle worker, nor is he a problem solver, but he is much more. He is God. When the text says all things well, it's an echo of Genesis 31 here, of how when God created the world, he said he made it, and he said, behold, it was very good. But because sin entered the world, it became unhinged. Jesus' miracle here is a foretaste of what also the prophet Isaiah says in 35 verse 5 here, where he promises that the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. It's a sign and promise that when this happens, Jesus will restore all things to be good again beholding a cosmos that is very good. That's the promise. I'm, um, ever since I had kids, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for different playgrounds to scope out for my kids to play on because I believe playgrounds represent safe havens. And so I kind of like, I've gone around a lot of playgrounds in Fremont, actually. Um, I, I took my kids to the Niles playground. It's nice and quaint, and there's not a lot of people there, but also sometimes you want a little bit more pizzazz. So I scoped out the Irvington Park, and the Irvington Park was so much bigger, had bigger slides, but the problem there was it had graffiti of all this profanity and anatomical body parts of slang words that I don't want my kids picking up, but they did anyways. So I was super upset about that. And so uh, news came out that there's a brand new park in Fremont on Dustberry Road or something next to the DMV. And we went there, and it was epic. Like, like the design was crazy. There's a lot for the kids to do. I went back with my daughter this past week only to find a wrapper of contraceptives on the ground. I was like, Why, what is this doing here? Right? I was so disappointed. This past week in my uh, community group, we were also talking about the purpose of life, some light discussion. And as we're thinking about the purpose of life, one individual talks about a TikTok video, how everyone, how he talks about how um, futile, futile life really is. That your loved ones die, uh, you die, everybody dies. So what's the point in working so hard and repeating the cycle all over again? There's no purpose to it all. Like all the parents with kids are like all exhausted and we're all, all agreeing to this. And then there was this one response that stood out to me 
where the individual said, you know, I still like going to playgrounds at night with my friends and playing on the parks. And it stood out to me because I thought about worship. That playgrounds aren't so much about safe havens as they are about avenues of rejuvenating a deeper joy. To refine a childlikeness in us. That no matter how unhinged the playgrounds can be with this graffiti and wrappers on the ground, there's still a joy that God is reminding us of. The world is our playground. We can get, we can be stuck and be uh, about how unhinged the world is with fires engulfing the closest thing we have to paradise in Hawaii. Will we still have to worry about guns just going to the Dollar General store? Will we still drop off meals to cancer patients, to friends who have cancer? The world is unhinged. And you can focus on the unhingedness. Or you can see the deeper joy that God still has in store for us. Playgrounds aren't safe havens. I realize they're more about recovering our childlikeness. That as we swing on monkey bars or go down slides, we're carefree in that moment. Carefree, not in a reckless way. Carefree because we know someone who is careful, full of care for us, is still watching over us for us to still enjoy life in an unhinged world. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus makes this promise in Isaiah 35, 5. I will restore all things and make it very good. Until then, wait for me. And that's the struggle that we bear. Because as Jesus looked at this man's situation, notice what he also does. In verse 34, before he brings healing, he lets out a deep breath to sigh. Not because Jesus is exhausted, not because of frustration. Rather, Jesus, in his sigh, he's connecting with our misery. Jesus connects in our misery. Jesus knew that the only way to open up the powers of heaven to bring healing, to not just restore us, but an entire humanity, the whole cosmos, is only if he enters into our misery. That no matter how deaf our hearts can become, at the cross, God opens up his mercy for us. Why? Because essentially Jesus himself became a deaf man. Jesus himself became deaf, closed off from the heart of God, so that God's heart may be open to all of you. God made you the very joy of his heart. And he says, I want you to wait because behold, in the ending of all this, I'll make it all good again. Be open, God says, because that's how the good stuff gets in. Would you join me in a word of prayer?